Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word this day. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and experience its power to change our lives. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning's epistle reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning with verse 12 to 17, the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Arena. Um, These past few weeks, we've been looking at the New Testament letter to the Galatians. Uh, Perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, the book of Galatians unpack what it means to be a Christian in contrast to the way that religion was commonly understood in their day and the way it's commonly understood uh, in our own day. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is perhaps the pinnacle of the whole letter. It's here in Galatians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 1,800. 13. Uh, This is God's word. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Also, when we were children, we were under the slavery, under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. David Prince, a a pastor living in Lexington, Kentucky, once told the story of a family that he knew and the girl who became their daughter. But she was not born in Kentucky. She was born overseas, and her early years were not spent with a mother and a father or brothers and sisters, but with the other kids at her orphanage. There are many orphanages that offer love and support and, and care uh, like, like you would hope when you're a, a child without a parent, but this was not one of them. You can almost imagine the feeling of a military boot camp where beds must be made so perfectly that you can bounce a coin 
off of them, where the slightest imperfection is met with harsh words and punishment. That same environment, only not for grown men and women, but for little children who in that orphanage endured unspeakable, horrific things. In boot camp, the worst thing they can do to you if you don't measure up is send you home, but these kids had no home to be sent to. For one of these little girls, though, a time came when uh, these, this pastor's friends would come and, and would actually offer her a forever home, adopt her to make her their own child. When they brought her home to be a part of this new thing called a family, she was surprised to find out she didn't have to share a room with dozens of other kids. She got her own room. But since it was her own room, she would be the one responsible to keep it clean and, and was to do that every day. So the first morning, when her new parents came into her room, her own room, they found that it was immaculate. Nothing was out of place, nothing unmade that should be made, nothing out that should be put away, everything in its place, clean and tidy and perfect and orderly. The next day, they came in to see the exact same thing, and then the next day, and then the next. I mean, outwardly, this looked like one put-together child. But inside, something else was actually going on inside of her. You see, that perfectly made bed, as she sat on it in her perfectly clean room, every morning they would see her there asking the same questions to them, saying, my room is clean, can I stay? Do you still love me? The words broke her new parents' hearts. You see, she had uh, been given that responsibility to clean her room, and she so fixated on it from her orphan mentality that she had, that where it was more like a slave existence, that she assumed this was the thing that I have to do for my new masters so they'll let me stay. There she was, a beloved child, adopted into a loving family, but still living like an orphan, still living like she was a slave. What if that actually described us in this room? You see, in the Bible, the church is described as the family of God. In the passage that we just looked at, the words of family are all over the place. Multiple times we see words like son and father and child and and heir. And multiple times throughout Paul's other letters, he describes the status of a Christian as one adopted by God. But the reality is, just like an adopted child can mistakenly live like they're still an orphan, so can those who have spiritually been adopted by God live like a spiritual orphan. What does that look like, to live like a spiritual orphan? What alternative does Paul point us to in this passage? And how can that actually become a reality for us? That's what I want to talk about uh, this morning. So first, what does it look like to live as a spiritual orphan? Well, decades ago, a missionary couple named uh, Paul and Rosemary Miller were traveling in Africa, and there they met a whole lot of, of orphans. And what they saw left a lasting impression. They saw a fierce independence in them, the kind that was born when you realize there's nobody that you can really rely on besides yourself. They saw their survival instincts fully engaged, the kind that help you get by, but that never give you permission to let your guard down, to be loved, to be vulnerable, to be known. With this seeing this orphan mentality at work, they actually saw a reflection of their own spiritual lives. They saw it as a picture of how they'd been approaching the life of faith. So they started to make a list of the difference between living as a child of God versus living as a spiritual orphan. And among them, they observed that those who live as spiritual orphans measure their worth in comparison with others. 
For the Jews at the time who would have first read this letter, one common prayer of theirs would have been, God, I bless you for not making me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. In fact, the same type of sentiment about ethnicity and social status and gender was found in a similar quote from even earlier than that attributed to the Greek philosopher Socrates. You see, both Greek and Jewish cultures had a hierarchy of status. But in verse 28, Paul says that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In writing this, Paul is he's not denying the distinctions that these differences represent. We know that because of what we see in the rest of his letters. But instead, he's pushing back against making things like your ethnicity, your culture, your social status, or your gender the primary way of defining yours or another person's identity or relative worth before God and others. Because in the reality, that's what people do, even today. And it's not just limited to those few categories. You see, we can tell that we're measuring our own worth by comparison today when we feel worthless, when we find that someone else in the room is funnier than we are, knows more about something than we do, or has achieved things that we have not. We see it when we find it hard to speak well of those who have a lower education than we do, less refined manners than we do, or a different view of politics than we do. And here's why. Apart from believing that the ultimate judge of all things loves you unconditionally, the spiritual orphan believes only in conditional love, based upon performance or based upon comparison, leading you to either pride, if you think you measure up, or despair, if you think that you don't, excessively self-confident or excessively self-loathing. And if you don't believe that you are loved apart from conditions, you'll find it hard to love others apart from conditions. If you believe that you're only loved because you've met the standard, you'll find it virtually impossible to love others who don't seem to meet your standards. Because love and acceptance, it's like currency. You can only give what you've already received. Because they don't know the Father's unconditional love, the spiritual orphan feels no freedom to fail. Uh, Last month, I actually met a a Florida pastor uh, named uh, Ray. Uh, Ray grew up very religious, even of the Christian variety. But growing up, he would describe his mindset as that of a spiritual orphan. Uh, I once heard him talk about uh, why he had never learned how to ski or how to ice skate or any number of things. And he said it had nothing to do with opportunity. He had the opportunity if he wanted to. It had everything to do with fear. He says, the reason why I never tried any of those things was because uh, I was afraid to fail, afraid to be revealed as as not being good enough, afraid to be seen as a failure. See, the spiritual orphan sees the world and lives on a succeed or fail basis. So they need to be right. They need to look competent. They have a performance orientation that can spill over into all or nothing thinking that keeps them from seeing things as they really are, including how they see themselves. So they divide the world into basically good people and bad people, and desperately try to hold on to their status as one of the good people. You see, if you can't see yourself for the big sinner that you you really are, if I can't see myself as the big sinner I really am, I'm likely to cope by redefining my sin into something lesser than what it actually is. So I'll downplay my own issues, but I'll magnify the issues of others. I'll readily confess everybody else's sin, but you'll never hear me confessing my own. Maybe in personal conversations, or maybe on social media. Either way. I think Rosemarie Miller put it best when she said this about herself. As a spiritual orphan, 
I cannot face the risk of seeing my sin as my own responsibility. So having tried to clear my conscience by blaming others, I just turned on the afterburners and I made myself busy with work and with duty. Or to use Luther's analogy, I was full of active righteousness. So I looked to my own outward activity to feel good about myself and judged others by my own active standards. But the resulting mentality from all of that, fueled by fear, fueled by insecurity, is not much different from a slave's. See, it's what that couple I told you about found in that little girl that they had adopted. See, just like a slave of those days believed that they could earn their freedom, they could earn a better status by working hard enough, by working long enough, so the spiritual orphan slaves at the work of moral improvement uh, like someone trying to earn a better status before their God. It's telling that at the beginning of chapter 4, when Paul uses an analogy to describe their existence before they could relate to God as a loving father, he describes their existence in verse 1 as they're no different from a slave. And in verse 3, as living in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Slavery because they lived according to the demands of those principles, believing that either their Jewish ceremonial activities or their pagan religious rites would somehow buy them a better social status or freedom or spiritual status before God, but that never actually came. Um, A few weeks ago, uh, a number of our staff were in Cincinnati and got a chance to visit the Freedom Museum, which included an exhibit on modern-day slavery. Many of them find themselves in that situation when they hear the promise of a better life and they move to a distant uh, country uh, with a job offer that seems too good to be true because it is too good to be true. Suddenly they find themselves trapped, immediately indebted to their new boss. What keeps them going, though, is the promise of a better life and ultimately their freedom if they just keep working hard, but they notice the price of their freedom keeps going up and can never truly be paid. It's the kind of existence that one finds under the law that Paul is talking about here. Desperately trying to perform well enough that God will finally love you, just like that adopted girl was trying to perform well enough for her parents to finally love her. Yet wanting to live rightly isn't the problem in itself. In fact, a spiritual orphan can actually look the exact opposite way. A spiritual orphan can be very rebellious, always resisting authority, a heart that is hard and and not easily teachable. Because you see, an orphan doesn't have a loving parent to guide them in right living, so they have to figure everything out themselves. Trial and error, learn everything in life the hard way. Because there's nobody that they trust, nobody that they know loves them who they'll listen to when they say no. See, likely their only experience of authority has been impersonal, unloving, not perceived as having their best interest in mind. The same way we can live as if there's no father who truly knows and loves us, no God whose wisdom is beyond our own, who will yield to when he lovingly tells us, no, this is not the way to go. Not knowing that divine relationship of trust A spiritual orphan has lots of fears and very little faith except for in themselves. So they're fiercely independent. Their first instinct is not to pray, not to seek help, but assuming there's nobody that they can turn to, they just turn inward to themselves. They won't let others in because vulnerability seems way too dangerous for them. They have to be in control, control of others, control of their circumstances, and if they can't, at least be in control of their feelings. Maybe self-medicating by what they eat, what they drink, by what they do to others, or 
what they do to themselves, acting out through unwanted compulsive behaviors, all because they don't really believe there's anyone that they can rely on besides themselves. All the ways that we can think and feel and and live and act like a spiritual orphan, Paul knows what we need to hear. So in verse 26, he gets right to the heart of the matter when he tells these Christians, you are all sons of God. In fact, it's something so important, he repeats that or its equivalent six more times just in this one passage. But why sons? I mean, if there's neither male nor female, why sons? I mean, doesn't it sound so gender insensitive to our modern ears? Why not sons and daughters or children? Well, Tim Keller tells a story about how he, as a man living in a culturally progressive place like New York City, how it was actually, for him, a woman in a non-Western traditional culture that helped him better understand Paul's point. You see, uh, there was only one son in the family in her culture, and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and heir. In essence, they said, he's the son, but you're just a girl. One day, she was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings. She suddenly realized uh, that the apostle was actually making a revolutionary claim. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. So when Paul said out of his own traditional culture that we are all sons in Christ, he was saying that there are no second-class citizens in God's family. When you give your life to Christ, when you become a Christian, you receive all the benefits that a son enjoys in a traditional culture. He goes on to say, as a white man, I've never been excluded like that. As a result, I didn't see the sweetness of this welcome. I didn't recognize all the beauty of God's subversive and revolutionary promise that raises us to the highest honor by adopting us as his sons. So what are those benefits? What are the full rights of sons that Paul's talking about in verse 5? Well, it begins with what Paul writes about in verse 7. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. For them, an heir meant more than just being included in somebody's will. In verse 1, Paul says that the heir owns, present tense, the whole estate. To be an heir means that what belongs to the father belongs to you. His resources are your resources. His riches are your riches. You don't become an heir, though, in this sense because of who you are, but rather because of whose you are. I uh, haven't met too many heirs in my day, but uh, a few years back, I met an heir to the Coors Brewing fortune. Uh, Everywhere that he goes, he sees his family name. It's in commercials, and it's on neon signs hanging in windows. He can see it on bottles and cans and cases of the product of his company, his family name, and he can find that family name in Golden, Colorado, written aside the largest single brewing facility in America, in the world, with apologies to one of our own local breweries. Founded by German immigrants in 1873, Coors is now one of the largest brewing Uh, facilities and companies in the world, but if anybody has met the guy that I'm talking about, you know really quickly he ain't German. He's Chinese. He is not an an heir by nature. But 20-some years ago, an orphan baby from China became a Coors and became an heir when he was adopted into the family. An heir, not because of who he is, but because of whose he is. It's the same way that that works in the family of God. It's not about who you are, 
Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, whatever, but it's about whose you are. As Paul put it in verse 29, you belong to Christ. If you look at verse 5, that single verse, single Greek word is what's here translated the full rights of son, but in the original language, it's just the one word for adoption. Back in the Greco-Roman world uh, that this was written, sometimes a wealthy landowner would actually adopt uh, a son. Uh, if he didn't have an heir, he would make that adopted son his heir, sometimes one of his servants, even a former slave. For the landowner, it meant you know, ensuring you didn't have to worry about what happens to your estate. You would handpick the person for the job to take over. But for the one adopted, it actually meant something far greater. If that person was a bondservant, a slave of sorts, it meant a whole new status. It meant a change from bondage to freedom, from the bottom of the totem pole to a privileged position from a slave to a son. So it is for those adopted by God. As Paul writes in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son. You see, to be an heir meant having the honor and position of an only son just like Jesus. It meant security. It meant you didn't have to worry about your place in the family. Um, growing up as an only child myself, I can tell you I never had to, had to wonder if I was the child on my parents' mind or where I stood in the family or who they loved the most. When Paul says you are all sons, all heirs, it means you never have to wonder whether or not you are your heavenly father's favorite. The answer is always yes. In the family of God, there are no unwanted children, only heirs. That is your status before God in Christ. And with that new status, that new relationship comes intimacy. You may have noticed that twice in this passage, Paul talks about God sending someone. In verse 4, Paul talks about how God sent his son, Jesus. But then in verse 6, he talks about how God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts See, it's because of what Jesus did when he was sent that the believer in Christ can receive these full rights and all that status of a son's, all the things we've been talking about. But it's because of what the Spirit does. The one that Paul elsewhere calls the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, that one has the experience of being a son of God. The one who's sending Jesus talks about right before he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but will come to you. The one that Paul calls in Romans 8.15, the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the reason why we can actually cry out to God that way, it says in verse 6, is that the spirit of God, the spirit of sonship, sends into our hearts by God. Himself is crying out, Abba, Father. There is a voice from within that God puts there that actually cries out that way so that we can cry out that way. What that means for us has everything to do with that word, Abba. Abba is not a Greek word like the rest of the words in Paul's letter. It's, it's Aramaic. So why do you uh, write in Greek to Greek speakers an untranslated word in a totally different language? Well, it's because that's the word that Jesus used when addressing God as his father. Abba essentially meant daddy. It's informal. It's, it's personal. It's affectionate. For Jesus, his relationship to God the Father wasn't stoic. It wasn't distant. It was personal. It was intimate. And it goes both ways. 
We see that at Jesus' baptism where a voice from heaven says to him, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, God sent the spirit of his son to dwell in his people so that we can know God the Father the way Jesus does. God sent the spirit of his son to dwell in his people for that reason. To us, sinful, imperfect, damaged people, given both the right and the ability to know and relate to God, just like the perfect, sinless Jesus does, just like the beloved Son of the Father. Or in the words of Scripture, children of wrath but son, by nature, but sons of God by adoption. How is it possible? How does this adoption become a reality? Well, for those who have adopted yourselves, you know that there are always huge costs involved with adoption. Financial costs, emotional costs, time and stress, sometimes more than you even imagined. Um, Matt Woodley actually shares uh, about one adoption that was seemingly made for the movies. He writes, 18 years ago, my friend Andy and his wife traveled to a South American country to complete their adoption of a little girl. At the time, this country was gripped by corruption, violence, and political chaos. After Andy arrived, they, that is anybody who could profit from his plight, kept upping the price for the adoption. When he finally threatened to take the matter up to the U.S. consulate, a mysterious figure confronted Andy, warning him of vague but dreadful consequences. It was like a spy thriller, except it was Andy who was caught in the middle of the sinister, dangerous plot. But he refused to leave without his daughter. And he stayed there negotiating with corrupt officials, spending oodles of money, squandering time, and even risking his life to find and win this little girl. Now, 18 years later, Andy was fondly telling me about an intimate high school graduation party for Maria, his adopted daughter. But it all started when Andy walked into that dangerous nightmare in an attempt to bring her home where she could know him as father. Maria's adoption was far more costly than most. But what would it cost for someone to be adopted by God, to be able to call out to God as Abba, Father? Well, the answer is in Mark chapter 14, the time that Jesus spoke those very same words. It was the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The cup that Jesus was talking about was a Jewish metaphor for the full content of the wrath of God for a person's sin. In other words, our sin, the things that we should not have done but did, or the things that we should have done but did not, our outward rebellion, but also our secret sins, our impure thoughts and words and deeds, our mixed motives and the actions that maybe only look good on the outside, but on the inside we know are very different. Our desire to live as our own God and our own Savior rather than yielding to the one who rightly deserves to be both, our sin. But for the sinless Jesus, there was no reason to fear the wrath of God for his own sin. The only reason he would be praying this prayer is if we're facing the reality of God pouring out on him the wrath of due for the sin of another. That's what the cross was all about, where in his death, Jesus would face the just penalty for sin in the place of all who would trust in him and his offer to be their substitute. In verses 4 and 5 of our passage, uh, Paul describes Jesus as one who was born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under 
law. It means that Jesus in his full humanity faced all the obligations of living according to God's law and did so perfectly so that he could offer his perfect record to us with our imperfect records. To redeem, as he says, means to set free by paying a price. Jesus fulfilled the law that we couldn't, fulfilling all the requirements of the law to purchase a spotless record for us. But he also did it to buy us back from slavery to a performance-based system from a slave mentality. That's the offer found in Christianity, to lay aside a performance-based system that makes you a slave in exchange for sonship. It's the offer spelled out in John 1.12. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or as Paul says it in verse 26, the reason anyone is a son of God is through faith in Christ Jesus. Not trusting in your own goodness, but the goodness of God's offer in Christ. You see, for us to be adopted by God, Jesus endured far more than risking his life. He offered his life, a priceless gift paid for in his own blood, enduring the dangerous nightmare of the evil of man so that others could experience the love of God. And yet for Jesus, it would cost him even more than that. Just hours after calling out to God as Abba, Jesus would soon cry out to God from the cross with these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he say that? Because on the cross, as Jesus bore the sin of his people, God had to treat him the way that we deserve to be treated in our sin. The eternal Son of God, forsaken so that those whom God should have forsaken can be adopted as sons. What happened the one time that Jesus didn't cry out to God as Abba Father is what makes it possible for you to cry out to him that way. In her book, um, Living Beyond Yourself, author and speaker Beth Moore recalls a particularly insightful moment in her own life. She writes, I will never forget watching an evening talk show featuring the story of the parents and killer of a young college student. The killer was his best friend. The weapon was high alcohol content inside a speeding automobile. What made this particular feature primetime viewing? Well, the parents had forgiven the young driver, and if that was not enough, they had taken him in as their own. This young man sat at the table in the chair that was once occupied by their only son. He slept in the son's bed. He worked with the victim's family, teaching seminars on safety. He shared their fortune and supported their causes. He spoke about the one who had been slain by his actions in ways that only somebody who knew him intimately could have. Why did these parents do such a thing? Well, because it gave them peace. The interviewer was amazed. I was amazed. Uh, I kept trying to put myself in the parent's position, but I couldn't. Then as tears streamed down my cheeks, she writes, I heard the Spirit of God whisper to my heart and say, no wonder you cannot relate. You have put yourself in the wrong position. You, my child, are the driver. God was the parent who not only forgave, but also invited me to sit at his table in the space that my Savior left for me. Friends, it was because of our sin that on that cross, The life of the eternal Son of God wasn't simply taken, it was given so that you can have his place in the family of God. Let me tell you another story. Shortly after the Korean War, 
a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier, and she got pregnant. He went back to the United States, and she never saw him again. Soon she gave birth to a little girl, and this little girl looked different than all the other Korean children. She had light-colored and curly hair. But in that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized uh, by the community. In fact, many women would kill their children because they didn't want them to face such rejection. But this woman didn't do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best as she could. For seven years, she tried to do that until the rejection was too much. She did something that probably nobody in this room could imagine doing. She abandoned her little girl to the streets. This little girl was ruthlessly taunted by people. They called her the ugliest word in the Korean language, Tuki, alien devil. It didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based on the way that people treated her. For two years, she lived in the streets until finally she made her way into an orphanage. One day, word came that a couple from America was going to adopt a little boy. All the children in the orphanage got excited because at last, one little boy was going to have hope. He was going to have a family. And so this little girl spent all day cleaning up the little boys, giving them baths, combing their hair, and and wondering which one of them would be adopted by this couple. The next day, the couple came, and this is what she recalled. Quote, It was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot of home. He saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. It was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me. and He began rattling away something in English, and, and I looked up at him, and then he took his huge hand and laid it on my face. What was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. Friends, when God saw you in your weakness and your need, all your wounds, all your flaws, all your feelings, he didn't turn and run the other way, but instead turns towards you. And through Jesus Christ, placed his hand upon your face and said to you, I want this one. This is the child for me. Yet not just a child, but a chosen heir. Beloved, just like his only son. As many of you know, I was adopted myself. Growing up, that meant two things in my home. That meant I always heard, out of all the babies in the hospital, Keith, we chose you. And I also heard, you'll always be my son. In fact, I still hear those words to today, always from my mom, but I I never had a chance to hear them from my adoptive father, from Richard Robinson. It's because before I knew I was adopted when I was six, he died uh, from polio. As a result, the concept of a father always seemed very strange and foreign to me. In college, I remember the guys on my cross-country team talking about heart-to-heart conversations when they went home over fall break to catch up with their dad, like these bonding moments. And yet, as I heard them in the words of Donald Miller, it was like hearing people talking about going home to see their pet dragon. You know, it's like something you could kind of imagine, but you couldn't say you ever had any real experience or knowledge of. It was a few years later that I went to a a conference for college students where the speaker taught about the fatherhood 
of God. At that point, I had been a Christian for about a decade, but it still felt mechanical to address God as, as Father. It was too forced. As somebody who grew up without a father who honestly had very much of a morphin mentality, calling God Father just sounded too artificial. Now, I knew from the Bible, from places like Ephesians 1, that if you are a Christian, fatherhood of God is at the center of it. I knew that my backstory as a Christian was, in the words of Ephesians, that he chose me before the creation of the world to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ. I knew that here, but it wasn't really connecting here until a couple days later when I was lying awake in bed, not able to sleep, just crying out to God, asking him things like, why am I even a Christian? Why did you adopt me to be your child? And what I heard back was very much what I would have thought Richard Robinson would have said to me if I ever asked him that same question. He said, because, Keith, I knew that you needed a father before you knew that you needed a father. And I want to be your father. Friends, that's God's message in Christ for you as well. And it took Jesus being willing to lay down all the rights and the privileges of the only Son of God on that cross so that those very same things, the rights, the love, the security, and the intimacy of being God's beloved Son could come to you as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the promise of of adoption offered in Christ by faith. Father, we pray that, that you would speak to our own hearts the ways that we act and think and behave and feel like spiritual orphans, that you would remind us, even at this table, what it means that you didn't turn away from us when you saw all of our sin and our shame and our sorrow, but you turned towards us in the person of Christ so that we could cry out to you as beloved children to our Abba Father. Amen.